You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a paper from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. This online workshop re-examined ancient perceptions of nature, power and power over nature to better understand our current environmental crisis. The workshop, which was organised by Matthew Mandich and Giacomo Savani, took place on the 26th of February 2021. This episode features a paper by Thomas Monroe from Yale University. His lecture, Telus Imbuta, an eco-critical reading of Catalyst 64, was introduced by Jason Koenig from the University of St Andrews. It's a great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Thomas Munro. Um, Thomas studied as an undergraduate at Corpus Christi College, Oxford. Uh, he's now uh, at Yale as a graduate student in the classical philology uh, doctoral programme. Uh, Thomas is primarily interested in, well, in two things, really interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary approaches to Latin literature, first of all, and also 20th and 21st century receptions of the classical world, um, especially the use and manipulation of classical imagery in uh, contemporary political discourse. And uh, Thomas is going to talk to us today, offer us today an eco-critical reading of Catullus 64. Thomas, all yours. Uh, good afternoon or good evening or good morning, uh, depending on where people are in, in the world. And before I sort of begin, I'd like to thank the organisers for their work on the conference under such unusual and trying circumstances and also all the speakers uh, before me and the artists for thought-provoking presentations. Um, and I'd also like to thank uh, Edward Christie, uh, a friend, colleague, and indeed kinsman, who introduced me to the starting point for this paper, which is Felix Guattari's The Three Ecologies. To radically simplify the core concept, Guattari sees ecology beyond the purely environmental and contends that it's only by an appreciation of the interconnectedness of nature, human psyches, and human societies, and by commensurate ecological action on all three registers, we can solve our contemporary environmental and social crises. Uh, what I propose to do in this paper is to take the core idea of nature's influence on and connection to human states of mind and human social interactions and propose it as the intellectual foundation for an eco-critical interpretation of Catullus's 64th poem, which perhaps doesn't offer much to a reading focusing entirely on the environmental and the natural in it. Because I am using uh, this theory, which may seem either utterly alien or totally irrelevant, to the interpretation of Latin neoteric poetry, I feel compelled to justify my use of it. In the first place, I would stress that I'm not the first classicist to attempt to use theory that might be classed, very broadly speaking, as post-human in an eco-critical endeavour. The last few years has not only seen a flourishing output of works using modern scientific techniques in combination with traditional philological, archaeological and historical methods to more accurately understand the reality of ancient interactions with the natural world, as I'm sure everyone here is aware but also works which use modern theoretical lenses to interpret literary presentations of the interactions. And here are the second chapter of the recently published Music and Metamorphosis by Yale's Pauline Levin comes to mind. Uh, I don't think anyone has used Guattari explicitly yet, but certainly the influence of near contemporaries such as Donna Haraway and Bruno Latour can be felt in recent eco-critical studies. So it's not an utterly radical proposal. 
The main objection I foresee here might be complaints, but we cannot entirely divorce the theorizations proposed by those working on modern environmental issues and modern humanities interactions with nature from the context in which they are produced and the broader issues with which they engage, which typically, and in Guattari's case very explicitly, include late stage capitalism. To respond to this objection, I would argue that we might very easily substitute the well-documented ancient anxieties with seafaring and mercantile activity, which crop up in works from Cicero's De Republica to Seneca's Medea, and even arguably as far back as Homer in capitalism's stead. The poem at hand, Catullus 64, begins with the Argo, and hopefully I'll develop this point later, but the Argo can easily be read as a symbol for the desecration of the natural world, leading to strain on human psyches and societies, and plays its role from the memorable opening of Euripides' Medea all the way through to Seneca's version, where its association with greed and sacrilege becomes very explicit indeed. In any case, I do not even think we need to make this substitution if we can demonstrate that a different way of thinking about nature, and hence a different way of doing eco-criticism, is beneficial for analysing texts. The second justification I have for work is that there are demonstrable instances in ancient understanding of humanity as deeply interconnected with the natural world. The ancients, like us, perhaps even more directly, uh, were dependent on the environment for their survival. And I'm struck especially uh, by an example uh, given by Hughes in the environmental problems of the Greeks and Romans, uh, which demonstrates that they were very aware of the natural world as an integrated system. And he cites, amongst other things, Pausanias's observation that an uncultivated land in Aetolia meant that the Achilleus remained unsilted due to forestation, while intensive land use around the Meander Valley resulted in substantial silting of the river mouth near Praini. So it's clear that there's an understanding from observation alone that human actions had an impact on the natural world, which in turn could detrimentally affect human civilization. With this in mind, when we look at ancient poetry from an eco-critical lens, we might very well expect to see a recognition of the interrelation of human society and the environment, um, just to reduce another bit of evidence that unfortunately I only came to be aware of last week, um, but Claudia Zatter's fairly recent monograph on the pre-Socratics has demonstrated how these philosophers perceived humanity's role as part of the natural whole, and I contend that the, the perceptions there come very close to the theories of post-humanists. Uh, finally, and I, I will come to some actual eco-criticism soon, uh, I'm very aware of the difficulties with eco-criticism of classical literature, which Professor Koenig examined in a talk a few months back, um, the lack of anthropogenic climate change, even if there were precedents for environmental degradation, does mean that we should be cautious when using modern theory and avoid ascribing an anachronistic ecological consciousness to the ancients. However, by using theoretical models which allow us to move beyond the traditional object of eco-critical analysis and integrate ancient authors' views of psychology and society, where different opinions might be differently voiced, into an eco-critical analysis, the range of potential subject matter for eco-critical classicists expanded, and as such, some problems which might occur from a focus on the purely environmental might be avoided. The opening of Catullus 64, which is item two on the handout, has been frequently studied, so few of the following observations are new per se, but as far as I'm aware, they have not been integrated into an eco-critical interpretation of the poem. The striking adunaton of trees upon the ocean, which opens the poem, is the first signal of an interest in the environment. The poem opens with the balance of nature fundamentally upset. We get, then, the description of Iago's voyage and its purpose, and the introduction concludes in line 11, which we might simply ignore given the broad range of imbuit, sort of semantically it entered upon or it educated. It's only when we come to the end of a poem and find the earth too has been stained, imbuta, that we might consider this line to have a rather more sinister meaning that some translators have not given credit to.
The environmental desecration is bound up with the sort of greed which Seneca will later cast as rank sacrilege. But even in Catullus, there are hints with perhaps Alcisunt that the mission to cultures has a moral ambiguity about it. Yaga consistently, through its literary appearances, has a sense of ethical or religious dubiousness. Catullus goes beyond his forebears a little, I think in stressing the unnatural side of a ship. This is important for the current reading, not only because it's eco-critical, because Catullus also offers us a number of relationships more or less directly ruined by the voyage, which is useful for the particular theory I'm applying, uh, but I'll discuss these later. Next, at line 38 and following, which is item three on the handout, a reader might comment on a different ambiguity, namely the description of the Georgic environment abandoned by those attending the wedding. There's a sinister undertone to the day of celebration, culminating in the image of squalida rubigo, which here clearly means rust, but of course might also apply to environmental decay. Um, there's something unnerving about the rate at which nature returns. The phrase molescunt colla uenkis, as well as the aforementioned image of rust, suggests a much longer time of decay. And one might also see something sinister about the idea of the shadows left unchecked in line 41. Where we might expect a detailed description of the environment of deer, uh, as in the later version of the Ariadne lamenting of its Herodes, uh, we get very little to begin with. Uh, the next notable section of natural imagery in the poem is for similarly describing Theseus's victory over the, the Minotaur, which is item four on the handout, a more or less typical uh, image of a tree uprooted by a storm. There's a brief allusion to the landscape of deer at 126 and following item five, where the wilderness of the island is emphasised, but the focus is, of course, on Ariadne. She herself voices the next natural image with her questions to the absent Theseus at lines 154 uh, and following, that's item six. And throughout all of these, the natural world is broadly speaking hostile. The uprooted tree is the minotaur, the landscape is part of what drives Ariadne to despair. The questions to Theseus kind of characterize him in terms of leonine savagery and oceanic implacability. But more interesting for my purposes are two later uh, appearances of a natural world, first in combination with the divine and then with the human. The Sylvestria Donna brought by Chiron at 278 and following item seven on the handout. Uh, recall through their origin, Ewerte Capelli, the very opening of the poem. Through his actions and those of Peneus, the palace of Peleus is assimilated to a natural space, see especially at 293, Westibulum of Molly, Willartum Fronde Wureret. This is, of course, in preparation for the divine guests to attend, now that the human guests have departed. So Catullus creates a strong association of the natural world with the divine, and perhaps too a stark division between humanity and the quasi golden age created for the marriage in this section. Uh, what better way to uh, undermine this, really, but to display man's inhumanity to man through a dense cluster of natural imagery? Achilles' actions as presented in the Song of the Fates approximate violence unto other humans to violence unto nature. At 344, item 8, the field should be wet with blood, uh, an image which reminded me, and obviously this post-dates Catullus, of the ambiguity of Virgil's Ara Opima Virum in Aeneid 2. Uh, continuing the ambiguity of fertility and degradation of nature at 353, which is item nine on the handout, Achilles is compared to an arable farmer harvesting the fruits of the earth and his unrelenting slaughter of the Trojans. And to culminate this imagery, we have the brutality of human sacrifice at 366 and following item 10, where Polyxena, first uh, an Ancipites succumbens victima, simply an animal sacrifice, is then described as a truncum at line 370, which recalls a different use of the axe, that is, of course, deforestation. 
So natural imagery in some recurs as we might expect throughout the poem. And in each case, we can detect ambiguity, ambiguities, sorry, and tensions, which we might explain in terms of these registers. Viago alerts us to the upending of the natural world of human hands. The abandonment of the fields points to a sinister underside to man's relation to nature. The world of the tapestry's nature is hostile to humanity, or Chiron's preparations presented as amenable to or associated with divinity. In the Song of the Fates, the recurrence of ambiguous natural imagery sees nature used to illustrate human violence, and I'll come to the final images of the poem shortly. If we turn to the second of the three registers, that is the ecology of human psychology, we can point to Catullus's oft-discussed interest in the psychology of Ariadne. The description of her spinosus curas, her thorny cares, might be interesting for a sort of less than dead metaphor of the natural world. But for our purposes, we can simply observe the dominance of her speech in a central part of the poem. Psychological trauma is given a central place in the story, and it's both prompted by human sea travel, which we might be suspicious of from the very beginning, and set in a scene of wilderness and abandonment. The hostility of nature strikes a reader as a theme. We can also adduce on this level of analysis the misery of Aegeus when Theseus fails to raise the white sail at 238 and following. Again, we see emotional suffering foregrounded in the poem associated with sea travel. But it is the third of Guattari's registers which seems most prominent in the poem. The core of the embedded narrative in the Exorcist is, of course, the collapse of the relationship between Ariadne and Theseus. And the utter one-sidedness of her lament, more so than any of her criticisms of Theseus, is what really demonstrates the collapse of that relationship. Of course, we also glean uh, from this and other hints the eventual outcome of the central partnership of the main narrative. We know from our Homer that the marriage of Peleus and Thetis is doomed to failure by the time their son comes of age. And we are also painfully aware, and this is a point which has been well discussed in the scholarship, of a ghostly third relationship haunting the narrative, that of Jason and Medea, um, which also lacks a happily ever after. These relationships and their decline are only part of the impact on human society the Argo voyage precipitates. As discussed above, Achilles represents the apogee of human barbarism in the songs of Apachae, but his behaviour should tend towards the bestial or towards the divine might be expected by a reader with prior Homeric knowledge, but that it sort of tends towards the natural, that is, towards human violation or exploitation of nature, is perhaps uh, more surprising uh, unless we read it as part of a poetic system which associates human actions towards nature with stresses on the human psyche and on social ties as well. So the poem represents trauma to nature, uh, to human minds and to human societies throughout. Um, but where these themes collide with the greatest clarity is in the final lines of the poet. Uh, this is item uh, 11, which I hope everyone can see. Uh, Catullus reflects on a time before human sin led to an irreparable division of the human and the divine. And we might note, as others certainly have, that the marriage of Peleus and Thetis seems an anomalous meeting of the two realms in a period where the spheres are otherwise separated, hence the human departure before the divine arrival. The line which opens the final scene of human wrongdoing also provides the title to the paper, said post quantelus scelerest in Bultinifando, the image is quasi-natural, the earth itself is becoming stained by human sin. The next line introduces psychology, and so nature, mind and society are explicitly integrated as Catullus moves to conclude with an image of family ties disintegrating. If we see the association of the divine with nature earlier as something that we can bring into this final image, we could conclude that the image of the gods leaving the earth is somehow metaphorical for a division between man and the environment, but we do not need to necessarily if we look at the bigger picture and the sweep of the poem as a whole, whereby an eco-critical reading 
and an understanding of the role of the Argo as symbolic somehow of environmental overreach by man leads us in any case to conclude that the final scene of psychosocial decay is more or less directly prompted by human violation of the natural order right at the very start. Um, so what might we conclude from a reading such as this? If I wanted to be audacious, I could attribute the view demonstrated for a number of other ancient authors that humanity is inseparable from the natural world it inhabits and deeply interconnected to Catullus. And I could come to two further conclusions, but he perceives the interrelation of violation or degradation of nature with strains on human psyches and societies. That is, his perception of nature parallels in a meaningful sense the tripartite ecology of Guattari. And that if he is at all representative of ancient opinion, that the foundation I've used for my eco-critical reading today might be productively used for other eco-critical analyses of poems thought to be on thought to be beyond the typical range of such interrogations. More likely, and more conservatively, we can conclude that there are hints of thematic interrelation of nature and humanity in the poem, which we should be cognizant of in an analysis of this and of other ancient poetry. More generally, I'd hope reading is coherent. Um, and so demonstrates the potential value of theory of this ilk in the age of the Anthropocene when approaching ecocritism of classical texts, especially those where the seeds of thinking about nature are more deeply sown. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Thomas. That was wonderful. Really, so much to think about there. It's really rich paper, and it's great to, particularly to hear the, that, the frame, your framing comments at the beginning and the way you set them against that reading of the poem. Um, uh, we'll take some questions from the chat maybe I could ask ask one first though just to really just wonder if you might be able to say a little bit more about what you were I guess you were hinting at at the end and every so often every so often on the way through which is the relationship between this poem and, and, and other texts I'm thinking particularly about other epic and, and mythological texts I mean how far do you think this can open up a if you like an eco-critical approach to to epic more broadly or I mean are there, are there things in Catal 64 which are really distinctive and unusual in relation to that wider frame? I, I think there is a potential for, a, for a, a much wider application of theory of this of this sort um, as opposed to some of the, the more traditional eco-critical methods which are used and I think people are doing it and I think um, the example of Pauline Venn's book uses Haraway to approach the Daphnis and Chloe but Daphnis and Chloe obviously has the, the pastoral sense and so it, it it offers itself up to this eco-critical interpretation um i haven't thought that broadly broadly about the most whether there's a test case which is seems completely outside the range of eco-criticism where an approach where we think about the, the interrelation of uh, human society and nature could be used as a way of approaching that but i did think that the epic is definitely a potential and stuff like the prophecies in virgil I think are often very rich with with natural imagery, um, both the much shorter one by Craze at the end of two, and then I was also thinking about the Sybil in book six, um, the famous image, obviously, there of the Tiber, um, the, the bloody Tiber. Um, and I think sort of prophecy may be, a, may be a potential line where these tend to be sort of anthropocentric, um, but, but perhaps more reliant on nature than other sort of forms of discourse and epic. Thanks, yeah, that's really interesting. Do you think, I mean, this is this is moving off in a different direction as well, but do you think there's a there's potential here for tying this into a wider reading of Catullus's work as well? Or is, do you see this as an outlier within his corpus? No, I think I I, I need I need to I, I should have prepared this more, but uh obviously there's four um for the uh the the, the, the pinnace poem, which I, I I guess is smaller, but, but probably you could do something with that. 
in terms of desecration of nature but it's 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 it, ha it doesn't have as as, as strict a more i think the attis poem as well uh, might have something to do with that especially because i think that the 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 speech of Attis uh, has already been compared to, to Ariadne's lament and looking at psychology and nature there and their interrelation. And I guess there as well, perhaps also some of the Heroides, I know that's not Catullus, but just going back to the first point, her, the Heroides might offer um, a, a chance of this connection between sea travel, greed, um, uh, uh, violations of nature and, and the detrimental effects it has on human minds. Great, thank you. Okay, we've got several things in the chat. Um, uh, many thanks, Thomas, I really enjoyed this. I'm not sure whether you already made this point, but there does seem to be a link between the sea imagery used of Ariadne's psychological distress and the transgression of natural boundaries by the Argo, question mark. Is Theseus's violation of Ariadne's trust correlated with human violation of nature? I think there is a link between the imagery used of, of, of human psychological distress and the idea of of, of waves and I think uh, certainly um, I'm thinking as well uh, where we could go elsewhere with this it's back to epic again both obviously the Aeneid and with Lucan as well and the images of trees and rotting trees uh, so different different but sea imagery yeah I think there's definitely a link um, with the with the idea of sea travel as somehow a violation of nature and then the unsettled, the unsettled sea then becoming an image of the result of that. Um, I'm not sure about the second question. I'd have to think more about that. Um, but I think there might be might be something in there. I wanted to ask you, it's more of a, can you talk a little bit about rather than a specific question? Um, can, in, I noticed in the opening lines you've quoted about the Argo, he describes the heroes on the Argo as the Robora pubis, like the, the strength um, you translated it, of Argive youth, but obviously that word has um, a substantial overlap with thinking about trees and um, the natural world. So what do you make of that? How do you think that constructs human beings in this, in this opening where we have the natural resources on Pelion being exploited and we have the created ship? Does it make the humans like the ship or does it make it more make them more like natural resources because they're also delicti they're also chosen or picked out so there's this sense that human beings fit into this kind of narrative of exploitation maybe uh, maybe i'm going too far i just i wanted to know if you thought about that and what you might think thanks i i did a little bit um but i obviously haven't ended up commenting on it or integrating it into the into the whole I, I i do think there's an overlap i think there's a there's a consistent tendency to to um in certain texts where the sort of idea of resource maybe gets overlapped here so um the idea of timber um that these are the the, the human has this sort of weird overlap where they're obviously the ones doing the exploitation of the nature, but they are also sort of a resource that's being used for a purpose, like the timbers of the ship. Um, I think I did think about it and then got trapped in sort of a cycle of thinking about where it fits in is are they, there's a sort of weird tension there between they're culpable for the violation of nature, but they're also part of a whole. And I think this is actually a sort of paradox when we get stuff like, um, the Anthropocene as an idea is a sort of the combination of exceptionalism um, for mankind, uh, for humanity, 
um, and also the re constant recognition that it has to be part of nature. Um, so I need to think more about that as well. Great. We've got also a string of comments in the chat. First of all, again, point out that the oars also have palms in line seven. So there's a simulation of the heroes to the inanimate, but also vice versa. Um, and then two comments further up, pointing out that Guattari's work is also very fruitful in, in her own work on, on uh, for approaching early Christian monasticism and the question of what it can offer in terms of resources for addressing our present situation. And then finally, we've got a comparison in another comment here with classical Irish poetry and a, a suggestion that there's a strong contrast actually with what we've what we've been looking at in, in your presentation because in within in that material humanity lives in harmony with nature rather than the opposite so I don't, you, you're welcome to comment Thomas on on any of those if you want to just on the second I'll notice that obviously the golden age is this constant recurring fantasy and I think there is an element of golden age imagery which comes in here uh, with the gods they kind of create this natural world for, for mankind of a temporary space and I think the chronology here is obviously the chronology of a poem is, is, is a nightmare because for Argo's the first ship but there's also a ship before it and then humanity and the gods were separated afterwards, but it seems like they're already pretty separated at the time of the, of the, of the, the, the wedding. Um, but obviously the idea of the golden age, I think really starts to intrude um, uh, when the gods come uh, and they create this golden age environment for the, for, the, for at least one mortal, um, still their Peleus. Um, and that recurs obviously constantly throughout this poetry and, and the Augustan poets as well. So thank you again, Thomas, for a fantastically wide-ranging paper. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. To access more podcasts from the workshop, check out the Humanities Institute's podcast channels on Apple, SoundCloud, and on Spotify.